The Coin Week podcast is brought to you by PCGS, the standard in the rare coin grading industry. To learn more about current grading specials and programs, visit www.pcgs.com. This week on the Coin Week podcast, I talked to Daniel Frank Sedwick, numismatist, auctioneer, and owner of Daniel Frank Sedwick LLC, the premier seller of Cobb and Shipwreck coins in the United States. On May 15th, Sedwick's will auction a unique and historical regulated gold cob struck in Peru. We talk about the significance of this coin, cob coinage in general, and what it's like to collect literal treasure. Hi, Dan. Thanks for joining me on the Coin Week podcast. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. You have a big auction coming up. Uh, you know, you always have memorable and unique auctions. But this time, you're going to sell a very rare gold coin that has a $15 regulation stamp on it. It's an important piece that has a direct relationship uh, with other more famously known regulated gold coins of the period. I wanted you to tell me what more you know about this coin and why this primitively struck eight escudos gold cob from Peru was regulated by a silversmith in the English-speaking American colonies. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating topic, and because it's such a rare issue, this is the first time that we've had occasion to uh, study it in depth and uh, offer a piece uh, from this period uh, in, in gold. Um, and what's important to us is that it's the bridge. This is the uh, the... the piece that uh, it's the the fish that uh, came up on land if you will it's it's a coin that was made under Spanish colonies which is what we specialize in but then was converted into a circulating US coin and that's all proven by the the uh, plug and, and countermark on the coin um, so it's it's a very exciting piece for us specifically and for our uh, bidders and, and uh, collectors specifically uh, but I feel that it should be also a very important uh, piece to uh, anybody in, in uh, United States uh, numismatics. This coin was essayed by a silversmith named Joseph Edwards, Jr. Do we know a lot more about him? Well, the nice thing is that a lot of the silversmiths in North America are documented, and that's because there is a large field of actual uh, silver material. Uh, meaning uh, service sets and spoons and plates and that kind of thing. And all of those items will have marks for the silversmiths. And there are various museum collections. Uh, as I say, it's all been very well studied. And there are reference books that illustrate these marks, these pieces, to begin with, because most of them, or a lot of them, still exist. And it shows, these references show the marks that were put on these items. Well, it hasn't been that long since it was um, discovered that these are the very same marks that are on the regulated coins. And um, obviously these coins have been around since the, the 1700s when they were marked, but it's only fairly recently that numismatists made the connection and um, gathered what these actually stand for. And in our specific case, this is a silversmith whose mark was known from silver pieces, and uh, his mark is published in various places, but this is the first time that it's ever been seen on a coin. Also very significant is the fact that this is the very first uh, Cobb Eight Escudos that is known 
uh, with any mark, um, not just this silversmith's mark, but any regulator mark. Let's talk briefly to elaborate on this point for collectors who may just be tuning into the podcast and may not be entirely familiar with this period of American numismatics. Essentially, when we think about our hemisphere, we think about countries as settled math. You have the United States of America and Canada, Mexico, and the myriad countries that make up uh, Latin America, countries which were essentially under Spanish or Portuguese influence at different points in the colonial history. And our borders are pretty much defined, and each country now produces its own money under its own authority, and this money circulates in an orderly fashion within its borders. And the mechanisms are in place for the conversion of money from one tender to another. But it's all fiat money. It's not gold and silver. Uh, at the time when coins like these were made, this organization was not set in stone. Although it was established decades later, even the United States Mint in Philadelphia could not satisfy the demand for coins uh, in our economy uh, for much of its early history. And the U.S. did not formalize a demonetization of foreign coin until 1857. So when you go back to American colonial times before this, the shortage of coin was acutely felt. And so so-called Spanish coin routinely circulated. Even during the American Civil War, the Confederate States of America would sometimes pay its soldiers in silver coin from Mexico. So given that so many different coins are being produced uh, to different standards, it would have been necessary to have some sort of mechanism to denominate a coin so that it could be used in regions other than where it was intended to circulate. So how frequently do you think Cobb coinage would have circulated in the English-speaking American colonies? Well, there's plenty of evidence that cobs in general did circulate in the colonies. Uh, we have seen a, a number of different types of coins come in, uh, from various finds in Massachusetts and, and places like that. Um, but the, the real issue here is how much gold circulated in the United States, uh, or the colonies, rather, um, because uh, gold was mostly for large-scale transactions. The everyday man was was generally not likely to ever see a gold cob or, or gold coin uh, in his day-to-day -day, uh, dealings. Uh, so it was merchants, really, that were dealing with these uh, these pieces, and they had ways to um, to transact uh, in, in large scale. But every now and then, uh, they would need to know specifically whether their pieces they were dealing in were uh, official, the fineness was good, the weight was good, that type of thing, and that's where uh, these regulation uh, uh, regulations come in into play. Um, when it comes to Spanish gold as opposed to other um, types of, of gold that were around at the time, um, it's pretty uh, clear that Spanish gold was the most common. That was what was being made the most, uh, but it didn't generally make it to the uh, British colonies so much as Portuguese gold. So I would say maybe 95% or more of the regulated gold coins that we do know of are Portuguese or Brazilian uh, gold coins, or, which is even more interesting, uh, they are counterfeits of the same, generally made in, in Britain in, in thinner uh, on thinner planchets and um, similar designs, but lower weight. Uh, and also, fineness was good. So it, it's quite interesting that uh, when we see the trade between North America and the West Indies, 
um, and the various markings, some of which we know are for certain islands in the West Indies, like St. Vincent or Martinique, for example. Uh, generally, they're on Portuguese or Brazilian uh, gold coins, and uh, the Spanish coins are rather few. And as far as cobs go specifically, whether you're talking about regulated coins or you're talking about just silver coins that were circulated day to day in the colonies, the North American colonies, uh, generally that stuff went out of vogue, went out of circulation because the nature of cobs is that they don't have any edge. So there was no way to look at the coin unless you had a lot of experience and tell that the edge was still intact and, and that uh, the coin was still full weight. You'd have to have a scale. There are various reasons why uh, cobs were just not practical, uh, especially since there were milled coins, the Brazilian and Portuguese coins, for example, um, that could be used instead and, and did have edges and could be you could tell easily that they'd been tampered with. So that's another reason why regulation was quite important on uh, cobs. Uh, if you were to look at a cob, if you saw the regulator mark, then you knew that it, are, it had already brought, been brought down to uh, the standard that uh, would be expected. Uh, the, uh, because if you look at the uh, values of these, um, they are generally the regulated values were generally for uh, less than um, less than the issue uh, value of the coin. For example, the um, this is a very good example. The doubloon that we're talking about was regulated to a value of fifteen dollars, whereas the uh, the issue of the coin in uh, the Spanish colonies uh, was actually a sixteen to one ratio. In other words, it should have been sixteen dollars in value. In other words, sixteen Spanish milled dollars. Uh, but they were so frequently clipped and um, underweight to begin with that. Uh, uh, they would be regulated to a, a $15 standard instead. And that's just talking about the Ada Scudas. Do we ever see examples of regulated coins where, after the regulation mark was applied, that they would then again be clipped? Because this this system seems ripe for abuse to me. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and, and especially with the West Indies, because if you examine the, the different uh, documents from the West Indies as far as what their allowable circulating values were, they were generally much lower than than what the uh, North American colonies had had stated, and the early U.S. So uh, it, it's almost more rare to see a, a coin that has not been further trimmed. Uh, when you're talking about the common uh, Brazilian Portuguese uh, gold coins, but when it comes to cobs, there are just too few pieces to examine, and the ones that we do know of so far have been pretty much spot on with the North American standards. One of the things that I read in my own study of colonial period coinage was that they were so deprived of coins that sometimes local governments were willing to accept clipped coins by tail, that is, based on an exchange of the value stated on the coin, the tail of the coin, as opposed uh, to by weight, which is uh, what the precious metal content value of the coin would be uh, after it was clipped. Uh, because Gresham's Law, you know, uh, the good money would immediately leave circulation, uh, would be exported out, right? While the bad clip money might have been all that was left to spend. Like nobody, nobody uh, outside of the colony wanted it. But if the colony accepted it by tail, it would stay, regardless of what it was actually worth. 
That's not to say you wouldn't have been severely punished for being responsible for sweating or clipping these coins, but this was sort of a, a practicality in some places. Yeah, the, the coinage was, was no doubt very scarce to begin with, and it, predominantly that is due to a uh, mercantile system that, uh, that Britain had with its colonies, and particularly the West Indies. What that means basically is that the, the colonies were – uh, their role was to supply raw materials to the mother country, and the mother country would, in return, give them finished products. And it was an even trade. There was not any money exchanging hands. That was the official word. And, in fact, it was illegal to uh, export coinage from Britain to the colonies. So that had uh, quite an effect. But, of course, you can't stop commerce, and uh, the coins ended up in the, in the, uh, in the system anyway. And from there, as you say, you've got Gresham's Law, and, and uh, um, generally what continued to circulate was the, the lower uh, uh, the pieces that were, were had been trimmed and, and tampered with. Uh, but again, I say on the cobs, which is what we're dealing with here, there are just so few coins, and um, they were already uh, pretty hard to – it was pr already pretty hard to identify whether they'd been tampered with. Um, that there are just there are so few coins and and so far they they have all pretty much uh, uh, been what they should have been in terms of weight and uh, value. So when did the era of the cob come to a close? The well, specifically gold cobs uh, ended in uh, 1751 for Lima, which is the the mint that that we're talking about here. That's the uh, the doubloon that that uh, we have with the uh, Joseph Edwards mark. Uh, it had already uh, ceased in Mexico in uh, 1732, um, and then the last uh, last one was uh, Colombia in uh, 1755. Uh, we do see some late Colombia pieces that uh, have uh, regulation marks, but so far uh, the highest that's confirmed is uh, uh, four escudos, which is interesting, by the way, that uh, all the denominations have, have been found uh, with regulation marks. You have the uh, four escudos, the two and the one escudo, uh, all from Colombia. Uh, this is the first Lima uh, piece, um, the first eight escudos, and the first Lima piece to have been found. Um, and to my knowledge, there are no uh, Mexican gold cobs with uh, regulation marks. How long after the cessation of this coinage uh, did cobs stop circulating in the Western Hemisphere? Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, you know, as far as the U.S. goes, a, a very clear end would be when the Mint started making gold coins um, in the 1790s. So um, at that time, it is presumed that any of the cobs would have been turned in for recoining. Um, but as far as worldwide, there's plenty of evidence that these coins uh, continued to be used uh, into the at least into the early 1800s. Um, what's interesting, I think, not in gold but uh, in silver, is that uh, the very f uh, first uh, instances of coining uh, with the very uh, with the early republics after uh, Spanish colonial rule uh, generally were imitative of cobs and uh, were uh, struck the same way using similar designs. So um, there is some evidence that it, into the early 1800s. Um, it was uh, the the populace recognized this design of pillars and waves that we see on this Lima gold piece uh, and trusted it, uh, as opposed to newer coins with new designs that uh, may have been of, of debased fineness, for example. 
Let's talk about the survival rate of uh, cob coinage. I think if you live in coastal Florida, uh, you've probably heard tale the story of treasure being washed ashore from the 1715 fleet and other famous shipwrecks. Of course, uh, the water surrounding the coast of Florida, a long and storied history of hurricanes, as well as the fact that even the largest vessels that navigated the Atlantic and Gulf Coast are small and delicate by today's standards. So how much of this coinage survives because of fines from shipwrecks versus the number of pieces that were preserved in pockets in Latin America and parts of the U.S. where the coins would have traveled in their day? No, absolutely. Uh, shipwrecks are the number one source for uh, gold cobs. Uh, and in fact, in, in many cases, the uh, before the shipwrecks were found, uh, the gold cobs in question were either unknown or extremely rare. Um, in certain areas or certain periods and mints, um, really the only coins that we ever handle come from, from the shipwrecks. Uh, for example, any uh, Mexican cobs up to and including the date 1715 uh, in gold are, are almost exclusively from the fleet, uh, 1715 fleet off the east coast of Florida. And then from Lima, it's a very similar case. The Lima gold cobs uh, from uh, 1713 back uh, are almost all from the uh, 1715 fleet. There are other shipwrecks that are later that had uh, later dates as well, but uh, those were less of a factor. The, the 1715 fleet remains the, the single largest source of, of gold cobs. Uh, but, you know, what we're dealing with here, obviously, is, is, a, is a, something that we see all the time that's just a one-off coin that, that happened to survive, um, and all the more rare for that. One of the things about numismatics, you know, we, we live in a period of modern coinage for so long, and I don't mean modern coinage insofar as we have dimes, nickels, and quarters with presidential effigies stamped on them, but the modern in the sense of the machinery and the craft used to successfully produce and replicate coinage in a consistent character and quality. Uh, with Cobbs, it seems to me that you're looking at not one class of coin or another, but literally thousands of opportunities to find uniqueness within types, dates, mints, denominations. Everything you would expect from an artisanal coinage is present when you look at a cob. This to me would, would make this a very interesting and stimulating area of the hobby. Yeah, and, and you make a great point. If you really think about it, cobs are probably the closest thing you're gonna to have to an international coinage produced by a European power in the medieval style struck in recent history. But the other thing that you said about cobs that is absolutely correct, you're going to find far fewer examples of gold or silver cobs with personality, you know, being well struck, well preserved, uh, historically important pieces. Then you'll find the same class of coins struck by the European national mints or even our own colonial mints at the same period. And cobs will almost always be available when they show up in the market for much less money than their period comparables. So this means that whether you're a collector of gold or silver coins, you can still go pretty far in this area and get great value for the money. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that uh, cobs are undervalued, and I think that they are uh, getting to be stronger every day. Um, but again, you know, the, the true value of a cob is, is always going to be undefined because each one is different. And um, it's, also, it's a question of, how much you want a coin versus the next guy. So uh, it's, and I think it's, it'll always be like that to some extent. Um, and in order to reach the higher values, 
uh, we need pieces like this uh, Ada Scudos that, that uh, kind of bridge the gap and, and make the connection uh, between the uh, few thousand Cobb collectors and the few hundred thousand U.S. collectors that are out there. Uh, one other aspect is that um, cobs are starting to be studied more in in terms of uh, dye types, um, in, in specific dyes, which has always been very difficult because the way these coins were made uh, on fat planchets and, and so in poor conditions, the dyes didn't last very long, and there are really very few uh, existing dyes um, that that uh, have been passed down that that we know of. So the coins themselves have to tell us what uh, a die sequence might have been, and um, very, very difficult with cobs, but uh, we are starting to see some um, uh, some research along those lines. My sister Corey is doing a uh, has been doing a, a die study of the Mexican Charles and Joanna coinage, um, the very first coinage of, of Mexico and of the New World. Uh, those are more of a medieval tradition in terms of planchet preparation and, and die. Uh, preparation, but um, still hand-struck and, and uh, not easy to uh, to study in terms of uh, die styles, but uh, that's the natural uh, beginning of it, and um, she is uh, making very good headway in, in matching up dies from one coin to another. Uh, there are some later cobs that have been uh, treated that way too, but um, it's, it's very difficult, and uh, it presents a challenge, and if anything, um, you can say that uh, the um, collectors of U.S. coins uh, like a challenge, and uh, they have um, studied the, the coinage to the extent where they can match up dies from, from coin to coin. And, and uh, uh, for them to make the, the leap into Spanish colonial coins, whether it's uh, the Mexican Charles and Joanna coinage or, or the later Cobbs, uh, that's a significant step. And um, we are doing our best to encourage that and uh, – uh, bring the coins forth for, for everybody to study. So when again is your treasure auction uh, where this uh, important regulated gold coin will be going up for bid? Uh, also, uh, what are some additional highlights from the sale? Uh, do you have anything worth checking out for a collector who might have two or $300 to spend? Yeah, sure. The, um, the auction, uh, to answer the first part, is uh, May 15th and 16th. It's live on the Internet. Uh, we actually have it uh, up for bidding now. People have, have already started bidding. <clears throat> the uh, coining question, the eight escudos, is lot 83. Uh, so it's toward the beginning of the auction. And um, we always put our gold cobs at the beginning of the auction. So that's um, uh, there's a lot of um, really high-end materials in cobs at, at the beginning. But then as you start to go through the, the auction, um, our next sequence after the U.S., coins, which uh, are led by this regulated piece, um, we always have a, a dedicated uh, section on shipwreck coins, uh, which is, we're the only auction that does that, and uh, uh, very popular. You know, the, these are uh, generally silver coins, some some gold and uh, some copper even, but uh, generally silver coins, uh, any one of which can be $200 or less, for example. Uh, one thing I thought I would point out is that uh, one of these coins from the Feversham shipwreck off Nova Scotia in 1711 uh, is along the lines of the regulated piece. It's a silver cob, eight reales, so it's a, a dollar-sized uh, silver coin uh, with uh, actually multiple um, silver plugs in it, um, which uh, is when the Feversham was found, <clears throat> these coins came up for the first time, and they were linked to the uh, city of New York. Um, specifically, 
and uh, they do not carry the uh, silversmith marks like the regulated gold pieces do, but uh, the plugs are quite obvious, They uh, and they're interior in the coin, so um, definitely you can't miss a, a plugged cob <laughs> by any stretch, and uh, the one that we have in the uh, uh, in the auction is uh, lot 444. Uh, then, of course, we have uh, plenty of different shipwreck uh, coins, and uh, uh, one thing I think is quite neat and, and is uh, easy to be overlooked is that we have a, a very rare variety of a Mexican pillar dollar from a uh, French shipwreck off Nova Scotia, the Auguste uh, shipwreck, I'm sorry, the Tilbury shipwreck. Uh, I was on the wrong shipwreck. The Tilbury shipwreck, which is a British shipwreck of uh, 1757 or 9, I believe. Um, and uh, it's the it was one of the star pieces of the uh, the diver's finds, and he'd kept it for a number of years. Um, but it's uh, uh, it's that's something that uh, uh, should not be missed. Um, although it uh, since it's just one coin, there it could easily be missed. Um, that's not a cob, that's a, a milled piece. Um, yes, I just looked it up. It is 1757 is the date of the wreck, and the date of the coin is 1754. Uh, and it has uh, the crowns atop the pillars are uh, both of the um, uh, royal type and not the imperial type. Um, I was also um, a collector today had pointed out to me that there is also trace uh, of an over-assayer on that coin, too, which is even rarer. Uh, so there are little hidden gems here and there uh, throughout the uh, the shipwreck uh, section that you might find, and, and uh, quite a lot of coins that just look nice, um, which is surprising considering that they were affected by the ocean. Another highlight in the auction that people should definitely check out is lot 470, uh, which is a Mexican Cobb Four Reales from the Widda shipwreck off Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Uh, that is remains the official, the only official pirate uh, treasure wreck out there, and um, the uh, Barry Clifford and his uh, museum have have done wonderful things and and really brought a lot of attention to uh, the public in terms of um, how pirates uh, existed on ships and what they did. Uh, but it's very rare to see a coin or anything from that shipwreck for sale, uh, and in fact. Um, the only coins that we know of um, that are officially from that salvage and that shipwreck are ones that uh, were distributed to um, various investors in the company. And some of those have gotten onto the market. In fact, uh, we've had a few um, in our auctions, and they are always uh, they always go for really good money. Uh, the one that we have now uh, is uh, probably going to be no exception there. These are uh, their uh, the ones that we have had um, in order to establish that provenance uh, necessarily have a certification from Barry Clifford. And uh, this one is in a uh, nice frame with a picture of a, of a ship of the period and then a, a, a very well done uh, certificate of authenticity signed by Barry Clifford. Um, definitely something to, to check out and, and watch in this auction. Um, after that, we've got uh, we have some uh, pieces that were made into jewelry. Um, that is another interesting aspect of this auction that, that uh, we have um, just started to do with this auction. Uh, there were uh, quite a number of um, hurricane uh, problems last year, last summer, uh, that affected Caribbean areas. And in fact, um, we have uh, jewelry clients who had to close up shop permanently. Uh, so we are selling their their inventory on on their behalf in, in this auction and. Uh, um, hope to have a, a continuing supply of that. Um, 
that may cause coin people to cringe, but these are coins that have been uh, well abused in their their time anyway, and and uh, just look nice for for jewelry. Don't have any particular numismatic value, uh, but. Uh, when you wear a piece of jewelry like this that advertises uh, to uh, people who might not otherwise have any thought about coin, coins uh, as to how beautiful they are and, and uh, uh, how interesting it is to see a piece of history, just in something you can hold in your hand. Then the, the rest of the auction is um, pretty much what we normally have in terms of uh, cobs from the various mints in, in the uh, uh, Spanish-American colonies. Uh, but also um, we have uh, early Republican and other uh, Latin American material, metals, and paper money as well. Um, something I might uh, uh, point out specifically in, in the uh, cobs this time that we have um, is a very rare um, billin coin from Santo Domingo, which is actually of the denomination 11 Maravedis. And by my reckoning, or that I can tell, that that's a, a strange denomination. I don't think of, I know of any other coins that are denominated in 11 of anything. And the reason they came up with that denomination is that at the time, the real, the, the uh, one-eighth of a dollar, basically, was uh, set at uh, 44 maravedis. And this coin was simply one quarter of that. So this is basically a quarter real, which is a, a fairly well-known and established denomination down the line, but uh, at the beginning of the mintage at Santo Domingo, they really didn't have any uh, idea of what kind of denominations would be popular. Uh, so this piece that we have, uh, among the finest known, but uh, very few are known in the first place. That one's lot 989. Um, one thing that is always very popular is we have uh, several royals, uh, which are presentation issues. Uh, the name royal is a bit of, of misnomer. It, the there's no evidence that the, the king himself ordered these coins, but uh, at the same time, uh, there is evidence that uh, special coins were made for special occasions or special people. Uh, they were specially ordered at the mints, and um, the result is that you get a coin that's generally round and has all of the details visible and uh, no doubling or um, uh, flatness of strike anywhere. They're, they're beautiful pieces, and as usual, we, we have a couple or, or several in this auction and, um, you know, we, we think that uh, uh, those should be very popular. Uh, one other aspect of our auctions that you don't uh, see in any other auction is shipwreck ingots. Um, you know, the, the shipwreck coins are, are exciting enough, but uh, uh, we also have gold and silver ingots, raw ingots, that uh, were stamped with official markings from the, uh, the, the Spanish colonial authorities. Uh, and in fact, something we have that's, that's unique within that in this particular auction is something known as a piña. Uh, we have a very long lot description on that in the auction, but it, it is um, it's called a piña, which means pineapple in Spanish, because that's basically what it resembles in in shape. It's a uh, cylindrical. Um, it has a, a, a core, uh, a hole in the core, a central hole that uh, looks like, uh, again, like a, a, the core of a pineapple has been removed. And the reason it exists at all is because um, in the process of, of refining silver and uh, making ingots, uh, this was kind of a uh, an intermediary stage where the, the ingot could be um, uh, transported and uh, moved on to different uh, 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 destinations, 
however, um, I think there are only two known that actually come from shipwrecks. So this was something that was very much a, a temporary expedient, and the large silver bars that we see from the Atocha, for example, were the, the finished product. Uh, this does come from the Atocha as well, um, and we have offered it, we have sold it uh, in the past. This is our second time selling this, this same piece, um, and we are very excited to see uh, how that will go too. That's lot 246 in our auction. Dan, I forgot to ask, what do you estimate the hammer price will be for that regulated 15? Yeah, the estimate that we have is $100,000 and up. I believe it opens at $80,000 bid. Um, I, really, it's hard to put a price on, on something like this because the uh, the common, and I put that in quotation marks, the common Brazilian gold-regulated coins uh, will sell for tens of thousands of dollars, uh, maybe twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. It depends on you know the particular mark and, and all kinds of factors. But then on the other end, you have the uh, actual doubloons made in the United States. Um, you've got the brasher doubloons that uh, are wildly popular, and then you've got the single known Standish Berry doubloon, which um, is uh, of a cob design, um, uh, much like this coin here. Uh, but was made uh, by the, the silversmith as opposed to being a regulated piece. Uh, what's interesting, by the way, is all the Brasher doubloons and that Standish Berry piece have the exact same weight uh, as our coin. So it's obvious that these were all part of the same $15 regulation uh, standard. Um, but it's pretty well known the, the Brasher doubloons sell for millions of dollars, and, and that's plural, millions. Uh, the, uh, I've forgotten what the Standish Berry piece sold for, but uh, hundreds of thousands. These are uh, these are the top end, um, and our, our coin should approach that. Uh, I can't imagine a, a seven-figure price for, for our coin, but um, it will go in six figures, um, and it's anybody's guess as to what the number will be. But whatever the number is, I'm sure that it will increase, uh, the value will increase as time goes on. And uh, uh, more um, people realize more and more what these coins are and how important they were to the, uh, the early United States. Well, uh, Dan, I learned a lot today by talking to you about this uh, piece from Peru, as well as our discussion on cobs in general, and I'm sure our listeners have too. Folks, if you're ever at one of the major national coin shows, be it Baltimore Fun, the ANA, or if you're in New York, the NYINC, uh, stop by Dan's Table. That's Daniel Frank Sedwick, LLC. Uh, there you will see some of the most unique and interesting numismatic items on the bourse, pieces from a vital part of our history. Uh, Dan and his staff, I can tell you personally, are leading experts in the field, authors of many standard references on cobs and the coinage of the period. Uh, these are good people to know. And uh, this is a great area of the hobby to become involved in if you haven't already. Um, everybody wishes that one day they could own a small hoard of treasure. Uh, Dan literally sells treasure uh, day in and day out, and he can make that dream a reality for you. Dan, thanks so much for stopping by. Yeah, that's my pleasure. I'm, I'm always glad to share, and I'm always very eager to get people excited about uh, a, a business that and uh, an area of collecting that has excited me for my whole life. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode of the Coin Week Podcast, please share it with your friends and give us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. For Coin Week, I'm Editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, happy collecting. <laughs>